Welcome to another episode of No Challenges Remaining, back in the U.S. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined, as always, by my dear friend, Courtney Nguyen. Happy episode 98, Courtney. 98? Wow. I'm already, I mean, we need to kind of start planning for the centennial. I know, we really do. It's going to be epic. It's a lot of pressure, I feel It has to be epic. Like, actually epic. Not epic the way that people use epic nowadays, but, like, actually epic. So, by epic, you mean actually epic, like... Corne Nicolescu, exactly. not actually epic like Monfils Simon. Exactly. There you exactly. go. Exactly. Either way, regardless, let it be memorable. But we need to start planning. It's a lot of pressure already. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> oh. um, well, we'll figure that out in due time. In the meantime, there was a lot to talk about this week. We kind of thought it would be a pretty quiet week coming off of a Grand Slam. And it was not whatsoever. It seemed like everybody was waiting until the Slam was over to blow stuff up. So we're going to talk about the big news, which is Serena announcing her return to Indian Wells. So we're going to talk about Fed Cup and the inherent issues and complaints and problems, but also maybe the wonderfulness and funness of it combined. We're going to talk about Jeannie Bouchard announcing her new coach is Sam Sumick, which raised quite a few eyebrows. We'll talk about Malek Jaziri and Dennis Molchanoff exposing some uglier sides of the sport as well. Ready to do whatever it is we do? Yes. All right. This week, Serena Williams announced via an essay published by Time Magazine and a video that she will be returning to Indian Wells, ending a 14-year boycott at that tournament, which has been one of the biggest tournaments in her home country and her home state of California. Hey, everyone. It's Serena. And as you may have heard, I'm returning to Indian Wells in a few weeks. Indian Wells holds a special place in my heart. It's where I won my first professional match, but it is also where I lost a piece of myself. For a long time, I just couldn't imagine revisiting one of the darkest moments of my career. Over the past few years, I've grown tremendously as a tennis player and even more importantly, as a human being. That's why I've decided to return to Indian Wells. 14 years, and she played there in the 2001 final, which she won against Kim Kleisters against a very hostile crowd as well. Courtney, what were your thoughts when you heard Serena's announcement? Because it kind of came out of nowhere, and she was asked about this a bit in Australia, actually. Yeah, she was asked about it in Australia. As people recall, last year when she was asked about it in Australia, it was she kind of very clearly had softened her stance towards Indian Wells. She was on the entry list for the first time in, I guess, 13 years last year, Yeah, and then eventually withdrew. And then this year, when she was asked about it again, kind of point blank in Melbourne, she really dismissed it. She said, you know what, I I like my vacation time that I get during Indian Wells. So, you know, to be quite honest, I think none of us really chase that story anymore. It's like, oh, okay, that's where Serena's head's at. That's cool. So it was quite surprising to wake up and see the announcement on time. Yeah, I, I was definitely surprised. I really, especially after last year thought that, yeah, okay, well, this is just going to be kind of how it is always, is that Serena and Venus are never going to play any Wells. And I I personally have always really supported that decision. I was never one of those people who was writing all these think pieces saying, oh, water under the bridge, it's, you know, the Williamses need to return. I thought that that was incredibly 
tone deaf. Um, yeah, completely. That, that position, I find it to be, yeah. And the fact we talked about this on the show before. Yeah, and the fact like that, that we both totally stood by this and said anyone who tells them what they should be doing or thinking or feeling is completely out of place. Out of place, completely. And so, yeah, and and me just putting myself in Serena's position, I would probably have never gone back. (laughs) That's just me. I hold incredible grudges, especially in that light, like just to imagine. It was funny because yesterday, actually, we're recording this on Monday, yesterday, Sunday, uh, my parents were, they read the things that I write on SI and they read the thing that I wrote on Serena. And so that was the first time they had ever really sat down to watch the videos of that final in 2001 and they were mortified. Like they were genuinely mortified by what they saw. They had no idea, you know, they remember, you know, people talk about it, but they had no idea. And so it's so different when you see it, it's so different. And, and that's the thing is I feel like as time kind of went on, people kind of forgot how viscerally shocking that incident was. And then to be, to then further put yourself in either Serena's shoes or Venus's shoes in that situation, regardless of, you know, there can be debate over the specifics of what was said that day, what was directed at who, et cetera, et cetera. But to just watch the video and imagine yourself in that situation. And it's like, why would you, why would you ever go back if you didn't have to? her father and her sister. down courtside. Serena, what a great competitive effort, but yeah. when you walked out on the court, you heard the boos throughout. How did, how were you able to deal with that, and what did you think about it all? Yeah, uh, that was that was the best thing for me. I think it was just a mental match more than a physical match. I didn't even play well, so I just was able to perform mentally, and it was a little tough because I won here before, and the reception wasn't so good, but you know, if you're a champion, you should be able to get through it. So yeah, so like I said, I was surprised. Um, I thought that her letter, that the letter that was published in Time was was eloquent in terms of just really focusing on forgiveness and wanting to rewrite this chapter of her career. All that's gravy. So she'll return. Uh, yeah, that's that's kind of my update. I mean, I, I like I said, it's hard for me to kind of get around it just because for me personally, um, as a minority, as someone who's not experienced anything close to being on that scale. But having experienced, you know, racism and, and um, you know, hostile <laughs> words of different mm-hmm. sorts in different environments, like, mm-hmm. I would never have returned personally. But, you know, all power to her. And I think that this is, you know, it's good for the sport, obviously. It's good for the tournament. It's good for the WTA. But this does kind of continue to validate this current phase of Serena's career over the last, like, three years of the more mature Serena, you know, the Serena that's kind of moved on from her up and down roller coastery days of, of being maybe sometimes too emotional or having some dark moments on court, off court, et cetera, et cetera. 
and almost um, graduating into a statesman of sorts um, within women's tennis. Now, it's very clear that's what she wants to do here. Part of her return, she's doing this fundraiser thing for the Equal Justice Initiative, which is something that helps with perceived injustices in with treatment, I think, mostly of African-Americans in the legal system. Yeah, this is clearly her trying to do something bigger than the sport and trying to sort of transcend just being an athlete, which is all great. At the same time, saying what I did before on the show, I don't disagree with what I used to say, that she never had to go back. I don't think she had to go back at all. I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, Serena, you're doing the right thing, because I thought right, what she exactly. was doing before was the right thing. <laughs> that's what, that's totally my response, too, which is why it felt kind of weird. I was like, I, I mean, yeah, okay, that's great. I don't think that you had to do this, but yeah. that's why my analysis almost ends right there. <laughs> but at the same time, at the same time, it's also, I can't be upset at it whatsoever because all i was saying before was it's totally her choice yeah so now it's totally her choice to go back and that's also fine and it's also fine as we can probably mention now that venus is not going back yep and, and i think i think yeah I, I do think that that's interesting and i think that it was very i thought i found myself kind of blanching a little bit at a lot of kind of the think pieces that were written about serena's return about this being forgiveness and magnanimous and all these sorts of things because it was how do you how do you stack that up against what Venus has chosen to do herself, which is not return? And um, it almost felt like a lot of those pieces were kind of writing themselves into this corner of like, so basically you're pointing fingers at Venus and what mm-hmm. she's chosen to do is wrong, which is not true either. You know what I mean? It's like at the, the end of the day, like both of these women, they're adults, they're in their, their early to mid 30s. And they, especially on this incident, are allowed... I think, to make the decisions they want to make. And I think that it's incredibly interesting that Venus, who's, I think, always been the more principled of the two. And what I mean by that is that she kind of has no problem standing up for what she believes in and being vocal about it. And, She's more political of the two. Yeah, exactly. And, and unwavering in her stances that she has continued to be unwavering and um, unmoved on this issue of India Wells, where Serena, who is now kind of graduating into this uh, this whole kind of ambassadorship role and has always been kind of the flightier of the two. She's the one that, that, that kind of flipped and decided that she wanted to. And it's not a judgment, value judgment on either. She, they Both of them have the right to handle the situation how they want to. I think it's obviously, again, great for the sport. That, that she's doing it. I mean, I'm sure the tickets for Indian Wells are like, I mean, I heard something like the night session for the first week is already completely sold out, mm. which is pretty crazy. So it's a huge impact to a tournament that never really struggled to sell tickets anyway. I hope people realize she's going to have a buy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she's because some of those first, play until because some of those first round <laughs> matches in Indian Wells can be pretty dire. Yeah, yeah, it's totally true. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it, but the contrast and the setup between Venus and Serena, it, it gets dangerous, I think, if people kind of celebrate too much this decision from Serena, because, you know, it, it becomes about criticizing Venus kind of implicitly. And just, I think there are tennis reasons for the decision, too, partially. I mean, she's not playing Charleston this year, it appears. And so she wasn't going to play all three back-to-back, including Miami, because she's always played Miami and done really well. There's been one of her best tournaments of her, probably actually, by the numbers, probably her best tournament anywhere on tour, Miami. So she's going to play Indy Wells in Miami and not Charleston, and then just two clay court events and how it looks to be shaping up. And she has missed out on a lot by not playing Indy Wells. It's amazing the sort of margin she managed to have in her number one ranking, never playing Indy Wells. 
Yep. Because there's a lot of points there, a lot of prize money there that she was turning down, and she would have done great at this tournament. And I always, I have to say, like, because I've heard this comment kind of in passing before, where people, where whether it's in the press room or amongst fans, when they're like, oh, well, you know, she loses nothing, like, when she skips Indian Wells, and it's like, you know, she shouldn't be celebrated for this boycott, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, do you know how much money Serena Williams left on the table especially this tournament for 14 years? Especially back when it was not mandatory and there right. were big prize, big uh, appearance fees on offer. Yeah, huge. Yep. I mean, and she put her money where her be. mouth was, yeah. and and Venus continues to do so. I I think I I don't know. I think that that's commendable. Oh, for sure. No, I think for sure. Anytime any athlete wants to take a stance and stand true to their beliefs in any direction, unless it's completely offensive for some reason, should almost always be applauded because so many just keep their head down and collect checks yep. and move on. And there's also, it's their job. There's nothing wrong with that. But whatever Serena's doing, and now that she's doing it with this whole very clear higher purpose of, you know, the Equal Justice Initiative and all that stuff is also hugely commendable because that's also not, that's completely optional and extra that she's doing that. She didn't have to do that on any level. Yep. So good stuff. It'll be very interesting to see what happens there. You assume the reception's going to be warm, Courtney? Yeah. I think so. I think that that there's no way that it won't be because I think that one thing that this boycott has done over the last 14 years is as much as Indian Wells has been celebrated as this great tournament, you know, especially over the last like five years since the under the Larry Ellison leadership of really overtaking Miami across the board. And obviously now with Serena playing, I mean, it's becomes really hard to argue argue for Miami. Yeah. There's no argument for Miami being the better of the two tournaments anymore. The thing in the back of your mind though, whenever you talked, spoke about Indian Wells was this racial, this racial incident, this racist incident um, that occurred back in 2001. And it didn't paint the community, which is an incredibly homogenous community read very white, super, very wealthy, slightly older. It is just a, it's just a different demographic than, Almost anything you see on tour, now that I'm thinking about it. I mean... Uh, Yeah, that's probably... It's definitely... I'm trying to think... Yeah, I don't remember anything being whiter. Yeah, no, exactly. There's Nothing's whiter. Some may be as white, but, like, nothing is whiter. And so that whole incident really, I think, made the community look bad. So to (laughs) not welcome Serena Williams with open arms would be pretty dire <laughs> yeah it wouldn't would not be great and i will say this this has been a shadow over the tournament for sure yep. to the point where i've heard i've had people who are working for the tournament tell me that on some level and this was years ago that on some level they had hoped that serena wouldn't come back because they had this nice thing going there and it would be totally rehashed and everything would be unearthed if she were to come back and be the big story and they could just kind of keep ignoring it and i will also say that i've done interviews Instead of interviews with the tournament directors of India Wells about just, you know, general site improvements and Hawk on every court and all these other things they're doing, where there have been like huge preconditions put on by the PR people, like you cannot ask about the Williams sisters. This is not an allowed topic. He will not answer any of this. Like it's clearly yeah. been a huge, huge cloud of the term. Well, the, sure. I, the argument would be if nobody talks about it, then it never happened. You know, right. we can all move on. And so obviously now that she returns, you know, you can't talk about her return without talking about 2001. I mean, the other instance as well, and some of the, one of the things that I would have to think log- logistically for the tournament is going to be difficult is, I mean, adding Serena to the mix security-wise, logistics-wise, 
especially now that she's doing this equal justice initiative as well with a bunch of meet and greets. This is a lot of kind of potentially demand on the resources it's hijack of the tournament. The yeah, I mean, it's going to, you know, to, it's just going to take a lot of resources to kind of satisfy what she needs from the tournament to kind of execute on all these uh, these projects. So, you know, that's <laughs> that's going to be a bit of a pain. But, you know, in exchange, you get the number one Serena Williams in your draw. So especially with India Wells, with how open it is and how the fan access is yeah. really good and big i mean there's like the people haven't been there there's a big like lawn where all the players hang out and they cross the path of the fans to get back to the area where practice courts are all very open and it's very very fan friendly and mixing and with well, serena yeah. and every, all the attention there, that, that could be a little bit of a wrench in the works through no fault of her own yeah no it's not her it's just, it's just gonna, be a, gonna be a base kind of a circus yeah. i'm guessing well if yeah. maria can make it work serena can make it work she'll do the whole golf cart through the back into that yeah practice court that's in the corner that is barely accessible to fans and um that way but this does remind me though i remember after serena in melbourne when she was asked about football players about tennis players who would make good football players she was like running through her list kind of and i joked afterwards i was like oh it's too bad she doesn't play indian wells because then serena should totally organize like a flag football game out on the field (laughs) ta-da let's do that Let's make cool. that happen. I want to see Maria Sharapova as a cornerback. <laughs> <laughs> as suggested by Serena Williams. Serena, Serena's seen football, right? I'm, like She knows that cornerbacks need to run. I don't know what she... I She said that. I was like, I don't know if you know what a cornerback does. She is tall. She's tall, but like it would make even more... I mean, she put Venus at wide receiver... Which makes sense. Complete sense. Because yeah. she's tall and whatever. Fast. It would have been fine if she just said, like, yeah, I don't know if Maria can play football. I'm pretty sure Maria Sharapova would totally agree. Yeah. Or she could have made her a long snapper or something. It could have been worse. Or, like, a kicker. A punter. No. She doesn't have the coordination to be a punter. I don't know. You see that soccer video that Fed Cut posted today? She's got some keepy-up skills. Oh, really? I haven't seen that. Yeah, it's not bad. I mean, she's not very good, but, I mean, she's better than I thought that she would be, which is not saying much, but... <laughs> she always... Sheriff always said she's, like, couldn't play any other sport yep. ever, and she's a horrible athlete, and that's not really true. It's not. You don't think that's true? No, I, totally I don't think that's true. I agree with her. No, I don't think that's true I kind all. of agree with her that she's, like, not an athlete. She's just a really good tennis player, but that, like, mentally, at the same time, like, she could probably force her way in, to be successful in a, in a lot of other sports. But she's we'll she's she's awkward. We'll see it out on the field. <laughs> she, I mean, Serena. I mean, you know what? Maybe Serena put her at cornerback because she knows Maria has the the trash talking skills of a Richard Sherman. That now there we go. There's oh, the link. True. There's the link. You're she's welcome. A, there you There's go. your link. And it all makes sense now. So you mentioned Maria Sharapova playing Fed Cup, and the first round of Fed Cup was this weekend with the World Group 1 and World Group 2, plus this nuts circus of zonal stuff happening in Budapest and other places where, like, 12 countries compete at once, which, sidebar quickly, I think that's how all Fed Cup should be. It looks pretty awesome, even though the countries are mostly irrelevant. The, speaking of Sharapova, she was back playing Fed Cup, which is always an amusing situation, um, because putting her amongst the Russians she never really sees or interacts with otherwise for which she only does really because she needs to for Olympic participation. It was a funny scene. Um, Before we get to the thoughts of her agent, Courtney, what did you make of this weekend of Fed Cup in general? 
I thought it was great. I'm super bummed how the Canada-Czech Republic tie turned out. That was kind of the tie that I circled when the draw came out last year. But once the Czechs didn't send Petra and Lucy and Jeannie Bouchard decided to sit it out, uh, I, I, it yeah. totally fizzled. It was, it was all about Jeannie not playing. It yeah. was a fizzle for me. I mean, once you take Jeannie out, nothing else can save it. Yeah, for sure. So that sucked. But, I mean, Andrea Petkovic's heroics for Germany against Australia, were that was just compelling theater. Um, just because you knew how much Petkovic was kind of fighting herself to get those two wins to seal it. She um, won 12-10 in the third against yeah, Stozer and 8-6 against Guy Silver for those yeah, who didn't see it. Exactly. And they were just, I mean, they weren't the best matches, like in terms of quality, but for pure theater, I mean, it was Fed Cup at kind of its finest, just because you had the packed out Porsche Arena. And yeah, it just, it was dramatic. Uh, but the, like... I don't know. I'm looking at my desk here. I will give my bowl of candy that is on my desk that is full of fancy candy that my sister gave me um, to Amelie Moresmo for the weekend because she was absolutely boss in making the decision after being 0-2 down after day one against four-time champion Italy to sub out number one, France's number one, Alize Cornet, for number 62 in the world, Christina Mildenovic, who also had only played one singles tie prior to the prior to that one singles rubber sorry before that uh, against uh italy's number one sarah ronnie she liked the matchup she thought modanovic could basically like first strike her way past Arani. that's precisely what happened beat her in straights then caroline garcia 22 years old comes through from a set down to beat georgie and then those two pair up for the first time in their careers they never played doubles before, together before modanovic and garcia and absolutely embarrassed the number one doubles team in the world in Arani and vinci beating them like six one six two or six two six one, one of the two, and handing Vinci her first doubles loss in Fed Cup in nineteen matches. Yeah, it was epic, and I was pretty damn impressed by that call from Moresmo, who, which I don't think a lot of uh, captains would have made. So impressive. Pretty cool. Now the question is, does anybody care? As cool as all that was with Fed Cup, especially and Davis Cup to a lesser extent, there's a sense that a lot of journalists for sure have. And a lot of fans, to a lesser extent, I think, have that Fed Cup just doesn't really matter. Maybe it does if your own country is in it. But, Courtney, you, we were talking a little before the show. What about the, rel- the balance of fun and relevance of Fed Cup? Well, and like, with, so few, with so few top players usually playing, yeah, I think the relevance can be pretty... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Arguable. Uh, <laughs> pretty <laughs> shaky. Pretty, pretty weak when you have countries like the USA, for example who has Serena at number one, and two other top 20 players now in Keys and Venus, they are going to be unseated in their, uh, in the sort of World Group 2 elevation thing because the top players never play. And with Sharapova, she never plays for Russia. Kvitova didn't play... The, Kvitova has played plenty in the past, but didn't play this time. I mean, if you don't have uh, results that reflect the landscape of tennis, is it relevant, per se? We've talked about this before with Davis Cup and Fed Cup on the show. Is it being fun enough to sort of counteract that i love davis cup and fed cup i think that they're fun like i always look forward to those weekends of waking up and just having a day of non-stop tennis and just the drama behind it all and you have those opportunities for like some no name to become an absolute hero and we remember those weekends you know for those players you know that one weekend when vashik pospisil was like beast mode and like totally carried canada through a tie and 
um, Caroline Garcia just destroying the Americans mm-hmm. last year almost single-handedly. Um, you know, you remember those moments, and then at the same time, there are just going to be those great matches, right? Like, not great matches, but potential matchups that are telling Sharapova just handed Radvanska her butt. Radvanska was terrible this weekend. Was absolutely terrible this weekend. Uh, and Sharapova came through in straights there. Muguruza, huge win, I think, over Halep on clay. That's a loss that I think is relevant. I think that it's one that you look at and you say, is Simona Halep right in 2015? I think it's a question. And is Muguruza ready to do some big things, too? Right. Exactly. But but I was I was a bit a little surprised by by what I saw from Halep in that match. Again, you know, some of these, you know, Georgie being absolutely unplayable on day one and then being back to her old self on day two. Anyways, great stuff. Really fun. The drama can't match it. The emotions. Phenomenal. Does anybody freaking care about Fed Cup? I don't know. Like, I just don't I don't think so. And I think that a lot of that does have to do with the fact that like the top players don't play. And it's kind of the equivalent of like on the ATP or the WTA, the difference between a premier mandatory and an international level tournament or a Masters 1000 and an ATP 250. Like, yes, it's a tournament and it's a like the 250s and the internationals. They are tournaments. It's a really big freaking deal for Victor Estrella Burgos to do what he did huge, last weekend and for him. Yeah. win in Ecuador. Um, or like, hey, is Peng Shui going to finally win her first uh, WTA title? Check out this week in Pattaya City. Does it matter in the big landscape of tennis? No, it does not. And, and unless you have the top players competing against each other and measuring themselves against each other, the significance takes a huge hit. So that would be the argument. I guess for Fed Cup. Yeah, no, I agree, and I think that this this weekend. And I think that your 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 sense about it and the relevancy is probably stronger than mine. So I want to hear what you. Well, have I to think say this weekend it. was completely inflated because they have this rule for the Olympics where you had to participate in either 2015 or 2016, something like that, to be eligible for the Olympics. Yep. And so, just at least one just time. about everybody was getting there one time out of the way this weekend. That's why you had Serena and Sharapova and Radvanska and Azarenka playing. Yeah, all these different top players who normally don't give Fed Cup the time of day. Ravonska might do some somewhat, but most of them don't Ravonska very, very rarely yeah. skips, you know. Yeah. But, but yeah, um, Halep, yeah. Halep, Halep's yeah. pretty good with tennis generally. Yeah, she uh, is. But yeah, so that this is why it might have seemed, when we talk about recapping the week, it's like, wow, these are real players doing possibly relevant things. Where yeah. in the past, I mean, there was a time when the U.S. made back-to-back Fed Cup finals, I think, with a team of Glatch and Udan. Which all credit to them. It was unbelievable they did that. But it's just, what are we even talking about here? And they were playing against a team of Schiavone and Panetta when neither were top 10. It just is not anything relevant. If you went around Melbourne Park at the Australian Open and asked 100 fans who had paid to be there who won Fed Cup last year, which was only three months beforehand, I'm doubting more than 10% would have known the answer. Yep. So it just it just doesn't have any sort of resonance at all. That said, it is fun. It's a great idea. I think it needs huge reform, though, which brings me to the thoughts of Sharapova's agent, Max Eisenbud, who made the trip with her to Krakow, which must have been just so much fun <laughs> for both of them. The F-bombs that I'm imagining in their conversations. So much bitterness. So much bitterness. Up. Yeah. <laughs> And to their credit, business people that they are, they managed to get a Sugar Pova booth set up in the Krakow arena for a road tie. Like, that's unbelievable to me that a, a, a visiting foreign player can set up her merch stand in your arena. <laughs> Meanwhile, there was no, as someone made a joke on Twitter, I forget, they're, they're like, there was no Cheesecake Factory stand for Radvanska. It was Sharapova, you know, being <laughs> big bad business and dwarfing the well, goals. 
And the crazy thing is, they sold so many bags of sugar pova. They sold something like 1,600 bags, which is like, I'm told, a record, a daily event record for them. Good for them. Like, everybody in Poland was buying this stuff. And so basically, Maria came in, she whooped your butts, and you gave her money for it. (laughs) Like... That, I feel like you're doing it wrong, Poland. I saw Sugar Poba for sale, actually, at a snack stand at LAX, and I was surprised. It's really getting pretty pretty global. As It's just funny to think back about all of us laughing about Sugar Pova, Maria included. Yeah. Like, this is like some lark, and it's like legit now. So, <laughs> Max Eisenbaut, her agent, also agent of uh, Lena, Madison Keys, Laura Brubson, and Ila Tomjanovic, said... Uh, I sent a series of tweets that started out, attention ITF geniuses, which is always <laughs> just tremendous. Attention ITF geniuses. Fed Cup needs to be every two years in a spot in the calendar that works for the top 20 players. How come everyone in the tennis world knows this but the ITF? Time for a new regime at the ITF. New ideas, younger minds, so obvious. ITF, the last thing Maria and Serena or the other semifinalists from Australia should be doing this week is competing. Just clueless. Do you... First of all, the the, the rage is, is tremendous. Se- secondly, tremendous. do you disagree with any of that? Do you think uh, we talked about this before, but just to briefly rehash the every two years better scheduling thing? Are those things you can get behind? Yeah, I can totally get behind that. I could get behind it if it was once every four years. I mean, I don't have a problem. I mean, I like Fed Cup. I like when it rolls around. If it never rolled around, I wouldn't miss it. It's not something where I'm like, oh. If they were to take Fed Cup away for a year, what would we do? Well, we'd be all right. There would be a, a WTA tournament, a couple WTA tournaments that week, or maybe there wouldn't be, and the the, the women could get some time off and That'd be fine too. in that way heal their bodies and have for a more productive WTA yeah, season. Have a few hundred K challengers for the other players, or whatever. But at the end of the day, like, wouldn't we rather have like one single competition that mattered a whole bunch rather than in one cycle four competitions that matter little? Yeah. Or not even that matter little, but like you don't know. The funny thing about Fed Cup, you don't know if it's relevant until the nominations come out, right? Like because like like because if we're looking at it right now, and you look at the semifinals between Germany and Russia, where Germany has to go to Russia, everybody's like, "Well, is Maria gonna play?" And Maria hasn't ruled it out, but I would be shocked if she played because it's in Moscow. Like she'd have to interrupt her clay prep and go to Moscow to play. She doesn't need to do it, and. That's a problem, right? Like, because if Maria did play, and if Russia were to field, like, a solid team, like, let's say Maria and Makarova, mm-hmm. or even Maria, Sveta, not Pavs, um, but, like, one of the combination of those three, or two of the combination of those three, then it would be a super relevant tie. Because then you're like, oh, well, Germany's A-team versus Russia's A-team. But if Ger- Russia's just going to field, like, some B or C team, you're like, well, then who and cares? This is, and this is Russia, remember, let's remember that fielded an F team for yes, the final. An just F team a few in the final. Ago. They uh. sent Panova and Chromacheva, which was just <laughs> contemptuous on some level to do that. And <laughs> Makarova and Orvesnina at least was skipping because she was playing uh, Sofia. I think Kirilenko was also doing that. And Makarova was sort of hurt, but had played Istanbul the week before in doubles. So, yeah, it, that was a huge knock against it. And in, in hockey, for example, and in international men's ice hockey, they refer to best on best tournaments which is like the Olympics is now the NHL is included. There was a year during an NHL lockout where they had a world championships where everybody showed up and that was a best on best tournament. And otherwise, best if it's not a best on best tournament, it doesn't matter. They have the world championships for hockey 
every May, which is or maybe even April, which is when the playoffs are still going on. And so it's this completely ridiculous, diluted field of competitors every year. And so if Russia wins because <laughs> their teams tend to – their NHL players, like Ovechkin, the Caps never do well in the playoffs, so he's always ready for the world championships, you know, goes plays against depleted Canada, it doesn't mean anything. So I right. think – and so rare is it to have a – Fed Cup tie, especially that is best on best. And then even when you get last, it, sometimes I mean, last year, last year in the final, one. I mean, you get it in the finals not, generally. generally. I mean, you, set, you set that. You set Russia and the U.S. aside because there are issues with like Russia trying to get Maria to play and the U.S. trying to get Serena and Venus to play when they make the finals. Fine enough, but like outside of that, usually if you make the final, you send your. Right, but that's not much. I mean, for just the final, it's not a big part of the Fed Cup overall picture. Sure. So sure. in general, I think scarcity would be better. Do it. Once every two years in like a two-week condensed one location place, it just had to be like a huge actual World Cup thing. I think this thing that the ITF is pushing now, calling it the World Cup of Tennis, is really sad. <laughs> they should stop. Yeah, it's pretty hard to sell that as what it is when it's every freaking year. It's like, this is the World Cup? Wow, tennis must be awful. One player notably absent from Fed Cup this weekend, but who was seen on a tennis court with a selfie with an unexpected individual was Jeannie Bouchard, who revealed this week that her new coach is Sam Sumick, who had previously been the coach of Victoria Azarenka for years. Uh, this was not an expected move, at least not hugely talked about beforehand, because Sumick was still with Azarenka as recently as the Australian Open. Uh, so, Courtney, what did you make of when you heard this announcement? Because I think there was definitely some... Uh, tremors that sent through the WTA caring world. Yeah, I mean, I tweeted it, I think, the day after, uh, I think, yeah, the day after the news broke that, you know, if there was a, a coach-player relationship that I had to go all in on as being one that would last up to near retirement, and I'm going to exclude, like, like family, so, like, Caroline and Peter, right. or like, Tony and Rafa, like, I would have gone all in on Vika and Sam. I just really thought that they were like the perfect team and i think that if anything i mean if you're talking about a time when maybe sumik would think about wanting to leave vika and go work for another uh player that it would have happened last year you know but like to but to stick it out and to be there for her and she gave that interview with chris clary um in january where she described him as as more of a life coach than just a coach um he's he has been a very settling presence in her life so to kind of stick with her through really a difficult emotional and physical year in 2014 and then bail <laughs> when she actually looks like she's starting to play good tennis yeah. again in 2015, I was like, damn, dude, that's cold. <laughs> or maybe maybe he thinks that now she doesn't need her as much or she doesn't need him as much. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. maybe but you would think that that conversation would happen earlier. Yeah. Like it, it from all from everything that I'm hearing, it, it was pretty came out of nowhere for uh for vika um this was not something that 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 she was fully aware of necessarily during the australian open so you know there's and you can tell i mean there's been twitter silence from her on the topic so yeah i i think that it was a i think she was pretty surprised to get the news so i don't know i i i, I genuinely feel bad for her. i think that this is kind of more Setting the tennis aside, I feel like this is a bit more of a personal blow than a than a professional one. So what? Let's talk about how it sets up each of them for the future. Uh, first off, with Jeannie and Sam, 
this a, a good partnership. Sam's done great work with his previous two uh, players, which were Azarenka and Zvonareva before them. And I think Genie's in a better position rankings-wise than either of the other two were when he started with them. And he really helped build them up. So with his personality, which is very patient, understanding, and mature, and you know, calming influence, how do you think that meshes with, with Bouchard, who is a fiery... More, more fiery, more sort of impatient type of player, I would say. I think it's a great partnership. I think that <clears throat> um, Sumik has experience dealing with um, players who can be difficult. Yeah. In in in, in, in his Vanareva and in Azarenka, um, he's incredibly patient. I think that just game style wise, he knows how to teach an all court game. I mean, there's no reason really that I can see that a Bouchard can't play that that style of tennis that Azarenka played back when she was at her best. Mm-hmm. Kind of an all-court, change direction, bring the ball down the line. Hugging the baseline. Hug the baseline, take it early. You know, back in the days of me turning to you and being like, how the hell do you beat her? Yeah. You know, like those were those were heady days, and that was the best that Azarenka played, and that was really a credit to Sumik, and again a credit to Azarenka because it's a two way street. The coach player relationship you can have a great coach, and you can have a player that doesn't want to listen and doesn't want to take in the things that they're being taught, and so that's my biggest question between Sumik and Vika, or sorry, Sumik and and Genie is just is Genie willing to potentially take some short term failure? which is maybe some early losses over the course of the next six months, if the long-term gain of kind of rejiggering her style pays off down the road. And I don't know because right now, I mean, she's under incredible scrutiny. She's a rising star. You know, if she starts losing, then everybody's going to be like, oh, see, 2014 was a fluke, all these sorts of things. And she might want to revert back to that game style that, that took her to the top five, you know, which is really kind of one note, uh, baseline bashing, which to me, I just think that she's a better tennis player than that. Yeah. And hopefully Sumit can teach her that. I think I agree that it's pretty much all on Genie, this partnership as maybe unfair as he's that is. He's the proven commodity. He's the proven commodity, exactly. He's won Grand Slams. He took, was he with Sean Ray when she made those two finals? I believe so. I believe so. Yeah, so he's done very good work with both cases and proven to be a great communicator. Genie has not necessarily proven to be, although she's been very coachable. I mean, that's the thing. She did transform her game very drastically from juniors to seniors and has shown a real desire to win. It's just about her listening and being willing to hear things that aren't how she plays right now because she has, as we talked about last show, they're getting blown out several times now in big matches. Uh, She can be very stubborn on court with her play. So it'll be interesting to see how quickly Sumik tries to change that and how adaptable Jeannie is. And just even the patience from Sumik because, you know, Jeannie is a player who, I mean, we saw it last year. And maybe it was particular to her relationship with Nick Saviano, but a lot of talking back to the coach, a lot of, you know, open and public disagreement. And, you know, I never saw that with with Vika and Sam. um, That's for sure. And, um, you know, whether Sumit can tolerate that or whether she'll just kind of like downplay it now that she has a coach who has proven that he can coach the game's best. I mean, maybe that level of respect will soften her a little bit. Yeah. How about on the Azarenka front? Who do you see? Where do you see her going from this? Um, It's tough. I mean, I mean, Jeannie kind of proved this before that, that once 
you lose your coach, at least at this timing, I mean, at this point, a lot of the coaches are taken, <laughs> you know, the best coaches. I mean, obviously, Hogstedt is floating out there as a possible name. That would be interesting. I think that I think that Vika has proven that she's coachable. She knows what she wants to do out there. Maybe on some level, what she needs is a motivator. I think that 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 um, Sumik was really good at that of really, you know, you think about all those tough times where he had to come down on court and kind of like tell, you know, remember last year at Indian Wells about like either you're going to play or you retire, but you can't like sit here and whine or like whatever. And which I say with him, especially in the, the Chris Clary piece was great and got into this about, you know, the ups and downs and the criticisms that. Vika has gotten, you know, the Australian Open incident with Sloan, against Sloane Stevens, various things. It's a very sort of, it's been, a, she's been a very close circle on the tour yeah. lately. I mean, she is friendly with Serena and and Caroline or whatever, but she has been mostly someone who keeps very much to her camp, which has been Sam Sumick, her coach, and his wife, Maylin too, who's her, who's her agent. So disrupting that could be tough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, she, and she's shown signs of trying to be more open and not being that closed off and, and mm-hmm. standoffish. Yeah. Um, she's been very vocal about that um, in, in terms of articulating her desire to be more open and recognizing that maybe being closed off and standoffish as she was over the last few years was not great. And and she's still kind of dealing with the repercussions of that in terms of her public perception and things. If you guys haven't read the Clary piece, you really should because she does open up about it. But Hogshed's out there as a possible candidate. But geez, I don't know. I still want to co-sign uh, Lindsay Gibbs's tweet she should hire Sasha. <laughs> Let's do this. Let's do it, WTA. Let's throw down. That'd be funny. Let's get real. That would be super funny. It'd be great. Two interesting developments happened where people might not have been looking for them on the lower levels or lower mid levels of men's pro tennis this week. The first was Malik Jaziri in Montpelier. He was playing against Dennis Istaman, took the first set 6-3, and then retired uh, from the match, setting an injury. The reason this was at all notable is that in the next round, he was slated to play an Israeli, Dudi Sela, and the Tunisian Federation had previously, in 20, just in 2014, served a one-year ban from Davis Cup for a similar incident in which they allegedly told Jaziri to withdraw before playing and Israeli in the next round. Jaziri also pulled out of doubles, where he was also slated to play an Israeli in the next round. This is not the only time this has happened for a Tunisian player. Uh, in 2013, Jabor was leading a set in 4-1 and pulled out of her match. It was a quarterfinal in Baku uh, before she would have had to have drawn Shahar Pair, another Israeli, in the semifinals. So... Courtney, we haven't talked about the Tunisian stuff. It's been a little bit of a, a lower level story for a few years now, as this makes clear. But we haven't really talked about it on the show, I don't think, before. What do you make of issues this raises and anything else? Well, I mean, look, I mean, it, first of all, these are allegations. Jaziri says that he or at least the official reason that he gave for his withdraw- or his retirement uh, from being a setup to Istamin was that he had an elbow injury that he was carrying since the Australian Open. Uh, he was evaluated, I'm told, by the ATP uh, on-site physio um, who validated that injury. I mean, we can talk all we want about yeah. whether or not that's legit. You know, there's lots of reasons why the physio might sign off on something that isn't necessarily true. Or, yeah, maybe he did have an, an elbow injury, but he also had a set lead on Dennis Istaman. So there's a lot of, 
he was doing okay. And there was money on the line. Like, let's and not points. forget that. Yeah. You know, money and points, but specifically money. Like, you know, just to like get that point across. Um, yeah, to be a so... first, if you step on court, you get your first round money. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, but then he would have, I mean, he was a set away from getting second no, round true, money. So, true. you know, which is a step up. Um, so is it incredibly suspicious? Absolutely. Does anybody think that it wasn't? connected to the the tunisian tennis federation probably not most people definitely are raising their eyebrows on this yeah. one and if people if people had this match circled and they saw the draw people before yeah. the match started said hey wonder what will happen here and lo and behold something happened yeah exactly i mean even the withdrawal when once it was once who was at Ehrlich won their first round doubles match and we're into the second round. I, there were quite a few people who were on Twitter um, who kind of flagged it as watch. He's going to pull out a doubles too. Yeah. And sure enough, he did. So look, the Tunisian Tennis Federation, they got their suspension from the ITF. ITF issues this like letter, right? That's like, oh, can't have this, you know, this these politics in the sport. And um, we need to teach them a lesson. Yeah, lesson learned. Not really. Like, you know, I mean – this is a bigger thing than tennis. Yeah. There's nothing that tennis can do to stop this from happening. Honestly, I don't think that this is a issue with respect to Jaziri or Jabour. I don't think that they're ha- they personally have any issues with Israeli players. No, there's no um, reason to think everything... they do. I mean, and yeah, there's everything that I hear. They're really they're, yeah. yeah, exactly. Everything I hear is that they're super nice people in the locker room and you know, that that they are not the ones making these calls. They're just pawns in this um, whole thing, essentially. But they're pawns in this whole thing. And yeah, it is that moment where you realize that, like, yeah, this sport is smaller than a lot of bigger issues. And it's just, uh, it is what it is. But um, it's definitely, it's interesting because I do I do wonder what the perception is in the locker room, which I don't know as, as of this moment about him and about, I mean, why would you pair with him <laughs> as a doubles partner? Yeah. I mean, poor Mark Lopez. I mean, that costs him, Yeah, <laughs> you know, um, having to pull out. So it's unfortunate. It's a tough thing to know how to remedy, because I do think the ten. I think the ban for Fet Davis Cup was totally right. And they give him yep. another one. I'd have no problem with that. If these allegations are at all substantiated or not sufficiently denied or whatever. <laughs> um, but it's tough for Jaziri because, I mean, he, yeah, doesn't. What, when the first uh, accusations came out, his brother came out and said that you know he's getting uh, pressure from the federation, and heard, I've heard the similar things from about the Jabor case. I mean, it's not their yeah. fault, so to punish them as individuals seems misplaced. And when we talk about they're getting pressure from the the federation, it should be pointed out that I'm not just t- like at least the things that I've heard. I'm not just talking about uh, pressure like oh a few strongly worded letters or a phone call, or a threat of even a lack of funding. I mean, we're talking about, like, potential threats to to them, to their families, of what can happen. And so in those situations, you almost can't even blame Malik Jaziri. No, it's very hard to. Or or Shabur, and talking about the past situations that are confirmed where there were actual threats um, for what they do. So how do you stop? I mean, yeah, like, what is the ITF supposed to do? It's just... It's an incredibly unfortunate situation that I don't think there is really a solution. There's no way that you can – there's nothing that they can do even if they sanction the the, te- the Tunisian Tennis Federation, which I don't even know if in the rules they can in terms of fining them. Yeah, we'll see. And whether the Tunisian Tennis Federation cares. I don't know. Yeah. But there's 
I don't, I don't see that on an issue like this that runs so deep um, that there's anything that any sports uh, organization can do to stop it. There you go. So it's sad. It's definitely not a positive development for tennis whatsoever to have this happen, but we wanted to mention it because it is a thing that happened. Wah, wah. Yeah. The other sort of cloud over the sport moment that happened this week was in the Dallas Challenger in the first round there. Denis Molchanov, who's a Ukrainian ranked in the 180s or so, was playing against Augustin Volodi, who's ranked about a, a little over 100 spots below him. And nothing remarkable about this matchup at all, except for that the betting patterns, once the match started, started swinging heavily towards Velody, even though he's lower ranked, and was losing and was down a break in the first set and lost the first set. And people kept putting more and more money on him. And eventually, lo and behold, he came back to win the match. And it started off lots of allegations of match fixing and stuff. And there was a great write-up of this covering it all from Sport DW the blog um so if you want to check that out we'll tweet out links to that and the other things we've mentioned on the show match fixing is something that gets talked about quite a bit at the lower levels we don't really see it as a huge problem at least in bigger tournaments um but what can be should be done about this issue as a whole or something that's kind of inevitable so long as gambling and tennis come together didn't molchanoff go on to win the double he did he did with so uh, yeah. He went on to win the doubles title with Andre Rublev. It's, uh, whatever. The funny thing about it is that none of this gets caught really without the fact that challenger matches are totally streamed. Like it's it's weird because like ATP challenger matches are easier to get a stream of a lot of times than like first or second round two fifty matches yeah. or five. USTA matches. does a great job with their streaming. Now. Yeah, it's a really good quality, so, ubiquitous across their main courts. So yeah, they do a good job. Yeah. So it is funny because we do actually have, I think, um, the Tennis Nerds on Twitter um, has a great little GIF or YouTube video of what looks like a dive from Mol- from Molchanov in the third set. Like he rears back for a backhand and literally like trips over himself and falls down. And it's an, an incredible piece of acting. Yeah. Like, And so that's the thing is that once you see that, you're like, oh, my gosh, something was really messed up here. And I think that... You know, I think Velody didn't really know what was going on. He's done interviews. I mean, no one, no one's talking about him as having anything to do with it. He was just playing his match. And, like, he definitely at some point was like, what the frick is going on across the net? Because he is missing shots badly that he has no business missing. So it was all that. But I think that in, in all the best thing about what's happened and who knows what the investigation will find, although... If you look at just the raw evidence, I would be pretty damn shocked if it doesn't find something. But it does give you finally in a lot of ways, like at least for me, a concise and visual example of what match fixing looks like. This looks very black and white. Right. This is black and white. There's no way around it. Like it's very it's just looks very clear. There's video of it. The the blog post that you cited does a great job of kind of tracking the moments that the betting patterns began to swing, which are completely illogical unless there you knew what the outcome of this match was going to be. So, yeah, I mean, in that way, I think that it's it's a great kind of primer and example on it on on what it looks like does it change anything i mean i don't think so i mean the more that ma- that challenger matches are streamed i think that will definitely cut down yeah on potential max match fixing i think that maybe that's my big takeaway of the whole thing i mean 
big picture, it would be so great if there was no gambling on these lower level matches because the temptation to do this must be so huge. If you get offered, you know, fifty, hundred thousand dollars to to tank a first round match at a and you were only going to win like a thousand dollars if you won, and that you match. only win like fourteen thousand if you win the whole tournament. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the math there is ridiculous. Financial, yeah, there are financial incentives. No, for sure. And I've, I, it's a little sad with channel because I don't, I only know him from like a distance. But I remember in 2013, in uh, when I was at Hala, me and him were on the same train every morning from Bielefeld, which is the sort of big city closest to Hala where we were both staying, apparently. And he was like the second alternate. It would be like on the train every day. He had lost in qualifying in the final round. And it would be on the train every day, like with his tennis bag, looking, sitting there, going, signing in every day, hoping that two people would pull out so he got a chance to play. And if that never happened, he never got to play. And it was just sort of, it's sad. I mean, you see how tough it is for someone like him who has been on the tour for quite a while. And if he does get put in this position, it's a, I mean, it sucks for him that he got caught. It's so blatantly, theoretically, if this does get proven true. But. Overall, yeah, it's just tough to to think that this money's out there and he can't make a living playing tennis otherwise. So it reflects some sort of systematic problems with how the sport is set up, especially once you throw gambling into it. It definitely sets up some problems and definitely highlights, you know, the difficulty for lower ranked players. That being said, I mean, there's a part of me that and this kind of comes up all the time whenever we talk about how lower ranked players don't get paid. Um, and how it's impossible to make a living as a professional tennis player if you're ranked outside of the top 300, et cetera, et cetera. That, like, it's not your God-given right to make money playing tennis. No, no. I mean, it, it's it's not – I mean, and I feel like sometimes when we start having these conversations, it, it, it starts to border on that. Like, oh, I'm supposed to cry a river for somebody who – is you know the number 450 person in the world and and can't make a living well yeah sometimes that's the case and maybe the sport isn't supposed to sustain that sort of level and obviously we can talk about what the effect that has on you know um the health of the sport going forward but um there's some darwinism involved yeah this idea that like oh i'm supposed to feel sorry for somebody who can't make a living doing the thing that they love to do um that's uh, that's everywhere. Like, that's, if I, that's if, not specific to tennis. That's just called life. Like you're not. I wish I got paid a hell of a lot more money than I get paid. But you know what? Economics are economics, and that's just how it is. And if, and if, and if we were the 450th best tennis writers in the world, we would be making even less than we do now. So <laughs> we would be unemployed. We would not. We'd be, be unemployed. We'd be very unemployable. So point. thank God that we are 498 and 499. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we are probably solidly top 200, I think. I think. I'm willing to go. Well, that's nice. Yeah. At least you are. Maybe not me. No, no, no. But uh, but yeah, so there is kind of a part of me that's kind of like, you know, like poor guy, but at the same time, like, no. <laughs> I also think maybe it's more – I've said this to you before. The one time I know I've talked to you about Mulchanoff before is that when I see him in person, I always think he looks eerily like Yaroslava Shvedova, and no one else ever sees it. Anybody else agrees with me? Like, just facially. I think they look so much alike. They could be brother and sister. Anybody agrees with me, please let me know. Because I have gotten absolutely zero agreement from anybody I've ever said this to. Probably because no one knows what Molchanoff looks like but you. You just Google image him. It's not, <laughs> now you know his name. Dennis with a Y. Just Google it. You'll, you'll find out. And... Dear listeners, make Ben feel better yeah. <laughs> about his, uh, his doppelganger spotting. There you go. 
I should send it in as long lost twins to John Warsaw. <laughs> you should. Oh, which finally somebody finally sent in the long lost twi- uh, twins into John's mailbag for Andrew Garfield and Andrew Murray, which I have always really maintained was a thing. There you go. If Andy Murray was a superhero, what superhero would he be? Because Andrew Garfield is Spider Man now, right? Right. So who would Andy Murray be? He would be feminista man. <laughs> I was gonna say Wonder Woman, which is close enough. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so there you go. With, I mean, that totally is a good thing. He does have her quads. There you go. <laughs> Doesn't quite have the twirl or whatever, but he can learn. He is a gift. I don't know if people saw, but Andy Murray was tweeting over the weekend watching Fed Cup, which Andy Murray watching Fed Cup. Let's just talk about that. But um, he also has been retweeting all these like feminism quotes and stuff. It's pretty great. Pretty great. Now we're coming to the ending of episode 98. Thank you very much for listening, guys. As always, you can follow us when you're not listening by liking us on Facebook, facebook.com slash ncrpodcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at ncr underscore tennis. You can subscribe to the show on RSS Reader of your choice and also on your podcasting app of choice and iTunes and leave us reviews on iTunes. That's all super. If you have a question for an upcoming show, you can tweet it at us or send us an email to nochallengesremaining at gmail.com. We're going to close as per usual recently with our rant rave segment. Courtney, what's got you worked up in any direction? I do have my rant rave. Okay. This time it's going to be a rant. Okay. And it has to do with women's soccer. Oh, boy. Yeah. So on Sunday, the United States women's national team played France in France in a friendly. It's great atmosphere there, which I was really quite surprised about. Um, sold out stadium in Lorient, I think, uh, in Brittany. Anyways, uh, the U.S. women's national team got beaten by France for the first time in something like uh, 18 matches. So this was like a Burdick Nadal sitch. It's more like a Burdick um, Anderson sitch, to be specific. Yeah, exactly. A Burdick Anderson sitch, uh, which is actually kind of true because the U.S. has kind of stood in the way of France quite a bit at major competitions. Anyways, this was kind of like a big match. It was a friendly. It didn't mean anything. But like France has basically been like if you know French tennis players, the French women's national team has pretty much been the same. Incredibly talented kind of stupid during clutch moments uh-huh. and this time they've actually like won and it was a very good performance from them they're technically sound france has now beaten germany brazil and now the u.s um which is massive they're basically like the best team right now which is super weird but anyways it opened up all these questions about the u.s women's national team and whether or not um they are going to do well this summer at the women's world cup which takes place in canada and all of this happens about three days after i actually buy tickets for the group games uh in canada for whatever stupid reason and i'm convinced that this is fifa trying to screw with the women's team for suing them about the whole artificial turf grass thing they stuck them in freaking winnipeg for their group games which makes no sense there are first of all no hotels in winnipeg like everybody's scrambling to find housing because there just isn't anything and why would you put, like, the biggest draw in fucking wing? Ugh, I can't even deal. Yeah. Anyway. Winnipeg, with all due respect to any Manitoban listeners, there is nothing there. There's nothing there. Oh, it's driving me insane. Anyways, so, but yes, I have just so many things to say about the current state of U.S. women's soccer. You blogged about it. But I blogged about it, so people can read it in more depth there. 42, 42 but, twist.com. 
42stwits.com. You can read my thoughts about the U.S. getting its ass handed to it by France. But the biggest things that I just wanted to say in my rant session is like it's an it's a very interesting situation to to be in for the women's soccer U.S. soccer team because this is a team that like in a, the states and I always try to explain this to my friends from foreign countries like they're actually kind of a thing like people know who abby wambach is like people know who alex morgan is you go to any other country chances are like a lot of brazilians don't even know who marta is who's been like the best women's soccer player for like a decade now mm-hmm. france just beat the u.s and i think julie foudy tweeted the result ended up on like page six and this was like a massive result no one really cares about women's soccer anywhere else but in the states and so because of that and what they did like back in 1999 when he, which was the last time the women have the US women have won the World Cup which people don't realize the people everybody thinks that like the US women are incredibly dominant they're actually not anymore not at the World Cup anyway not at the World Cup they've won, they've won every Olympics but they haven't won the World Cup since 99 which is like a really long time ago so basically the way the women's 99 team won right everybody loved the women's 99 team like Brandy Chastain like tears off her shirt it's the picture in the sports bra cover of Sports Illustrated they made the cover of Sports Illustrated like a couple of times three times I think that year maybe Mia Hamm everybody loves her she's like one of people's 50 most beautiful people like that year or the year before they're like basically idealized as this team of like girl next door type women. And that has always been the image of the U.S. women's national team. And at this point now, going forward, whatever, 15 years, like it's actually hurt them in terms of like the imaging and the marketing of the team actually hurting the on-field product as a team. Interesting. Because you are in this situation where you have to deal with Hope Solo. Yep. Hope Solo is our goaltender. She's one of the most recognizable U.S. athletes in a lot of ways. She is married to Jeremy Stevens, a former football player. Uh, she was arrested or charged with domestic violence, not against him, but against her cousin. Yeah, nephew or cousin something. Nephew or, nephew or cousin. It's like a 17-year-old boy. Yeah, that those charges were eventually dropped, but... Uh, during the training camp the U.S. has had over the last over the last three weeks, she was in the passenger seat when her husband, who was driving a team van, was pulled over for DUI. As a result, the U.S. U.S. Soccer suspended her for 30 days. Now, as I wrote in my blog post, I will be absolutely shocked if the U.S. if U.S. Soccer like doesn't let her play the World Cup. They need her. She's the best goaltender in the world. Well. You can argue that, but she is. Anyway, so you're dealing with Hope Solo, who's not a poster child. She's not somebody who, in a lot of ways, you want your daughter looking up to at this point. She's got a lot of issues going on with her. They keep marketing Alex Morgan, obviously, total girl next door, and she's kind of basically saving it. You're holding on to Abby Wambach, who at this point is old and washed up and is dictating policy on this team basically single-handedly got the old coach Tom Sermani fired because he was trying to move the team into the future playing possession-based soccer and she was like oh no I'm not a possession-based player and basically got him fired so that the system would go back into kind of her style of soccer which is dumb and old and antiquated and embarrassing hot takes hot takes coming (laughs) I have so many hot takes about women's soccer I can't even deal with it right now but yeah but it's interesting because then on top of that you have like Nike make choosing kind of certain players to make the face of women's soccer of u.s women's soccer and so if you make certain players the face of u.s women's soccer you can't bench them right like aren't isn't there pressure like you know like if abby wambach and 
Carly Lloyd and Christine Rampone, who are three players who there are arguments for each one to be benched, although Carly Lloyd should probably play even if I don't like her. If they're part of the marketing campaign, like, can you really bench them? I don't know. So anyways, there's a lot going on with the U.S. national team. It's really stressing me out. I'm kind of convinced that they're not going to make it past the quarterfinals. That would be an absolutely terrible result. And it bums me out because there are a lot of people on that team that deserve a World Cup and they're being held back by poor coaching and just nostalgia. And it sucks. That was indeed a rant. <laughs> Very well done. Sorry. Mine is more of a rant rave, mostly a rave. This past Saturday was the first weekend of Melody Festivalen, which for those of you who don't know, and I'm guessing most people don't know, which is sad, Melody Festivalen is the Swedish uh, selection competition for Eurovision, which this year has uh, 28 songs competing to be this the representative for Sweden in the Eurovision Song Contest come May. And Melody Festivalen is amazing because Melody Festivalen is like by scale, like about the same as Eurovision, but they have it like over the course of six weeks. It's in different hockey arenas across Sweden. They sell them out. They have huge, huge production values on everything. And it's so happy and shiny and tremendous and great. And Swedish songwriters are incredible, even if this is clearly not their best work. It's all pretty awesome. Uh, There's a person returning to the show this year for the third time named Eric Saade. Uh, who is probably about, I don't know, 24, 25 years old. And he represented Sweden in, in 2011, got third place for them at Eurovision, did pretty well, came in third the year before that in Melody Festival. And his song this year is so stupid. Makes me say, well, it's more the staging is stupid um, because the big dramatic moment of it is when he climbs from the stage onto like a little balcony type thing. And it's supposed to be this big like reveal moment that he's up on this balcony. And I just don't care. And it's Courtney, as someone who you go to concerts all the time, does it really like get you excited when someone moves from one part of the stage to another? It does not. I feel like it's this thing that people think is a big deal and it's just not. Maybe if you're sitting right next to like a, like a catwalk or like the, the outer stage of the thing and you're like right next to it, then it's like, oh, cool, they're right here. But on television, it is totally a worthless gimmick. And I'm just going to say that I think he, he qualified for the final, so he has four weeks to fix his shit. I'm just telling you, Eric Sade, fix your shit. Because like in his previous songs, the gimmicks were tremendous and popular, which is a song in 2011. He was in this glass cage and broke the glass and fought his way out. And it was great. In 2010, Man Boy, which will probably be the outro to this, he was singing and dancing. And then suddenly out of nowhere, this huge deluge of water comes and covers him like flash dance or something. And it had nothing to do with the song. And it was great. This balcony shit just does not cut it. No. So that's what I'm saying. Eric Sade. You can do a lot of things right. Fix your shit. Another competitor is coming up in a later semifinal. I've mentioned before on the show is the one celebrity I met at a tennis tournament. is Mon Zelmerlo, <laughs> who was like, I was actually excited to meet this person. Um, and he was apparently at the Australian Open this year. And now he's flying oh. back for... He didn't text you? No, sadly. He didn't send you a tiny email? I think he was pretty weirded out by how excited I was to meet him. <laughs> so we didn't. I did not get any of his contact info, which is maybe for the best. <sighs> but, yeah. so I feel like you and I have the exact our emotions are the same in our rant raves just directed towards different targets very much so because seriously u.s women's national team 
fix your shit. You're better than that. There you go. But I think mostly, mostly Melody Festival on it's great and you can watch it. There's a free app that has the SVT, which is a Swedish television SVT. It's a free app and you can rewatch the first semifinal and get really into it. There's this other song that entered that was like this weird Japanese wannabe thing called Dolly Style, which was these three girls dressed up sort of, uh, I guess, Harajuku-ishly. Um, hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And then their song was called Hello High. And they did this like roll call thing where it was like, I am Holly, I am Molly, I am Polly, hello, hi. And they danced around looking like toys and it was really creepy. That sounds creepy. It was creepy. Hello, I think you know me. I am a little doll. My dress and hair is pretty. I am incredible. So maybe don't watch that unless you're ready for that. <laughs> but otherwise, Melody Festival and pretty super cool. And I will leave it with that and with Eric Sade's Man Boy playing us out because it's an absurd, absurd three minutes of music, which you don't get the whole thing of, but it's pretty ridiculous. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll be back to you next week. We're trying this thing where we do the show on Tuesdays. We'll see if that sticks. Hopefully it will. But I feel like most other podcasters who are adults manage to have a day of We're the trying week. to grow up, you guys. We're trying to grow up. We're trying to be mature. As we near triple digits. We're trying to realize that this isn't like some... I mean, coming on 100 episodes, this is no longer some, like, throwaway stupid idea that we, <laughs> we decided on. It may still be, like, but we're kind of stuck with it. Now, so. Yeah, we are kind of stuck with it. Might as well try and make it it's as, uh, as professional as possible. So, yes, we are going to try and get episodes out on Tuesdays. So, in the future. Maybe not with the 9 a.m. precision of, like, a serial, but... Serials episodes come out so early. They were all at like seven thirty in the morning on East Coast. They would come but they out. were so it was so perfect though, right? Because like you woke up and you knew they were on that that it was there, and you know it's like TV. It's like appointment podcasting. We're not going to be like that. There's essentially a forty seven hour window. If it's Tuesday anywhere <laughs> in the world, if we can get it up during that time, we'll take it as a huge win. That's just because Ben's lazy. It's not about laziness. It's that I do all the work on this. <laughs> It is completely true. Um, is that in the future, I was going to tweet this, but I'll just say it out loud because so, I'm so proud of this. You can't spell Tuesday without NCR. Ah, oh, so great. And with that, I'll just leave the show because I can't recover from that. Bye, guys. Oh, my God. That was terrible. Give me love, give me love, and don't go. Strong. Oh.